Hello and welcome to Banker Christian Fellowship Church on this, the 17th of July 2022. Um, welcome if you're in the church here and welcome if you're listening in online. If you're viewing online, it, it probably looks a little empty, but there really are quite a few people here, but they're all sitting at the back. So, If you're a regular, welcome. And if you're a visitor with us today, welcome. Uh, I do hope you enjoy your time with us as we come together to worship God. And we'll do that through our singing, through praying together. We'll be reading the Word of God together. And this morning we have Jonathan Groves, um, who's a director of Caruso Trust, preaching from Psalm 11. Now, Duncan's away on holiday, taking a well-earned break. Mark, our pastor in training, is taking a well-earned break, so we are very grateful that Jonathan's been prepared to come in today. We talk about crumbling foundations, but we'll sing the hymn, Christ has made the sure foundation, and then John will come up and open up the word to us. So, Gay, thank you. Psalm 11, I'm reading from the NIV. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. <clears throat> when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men, his eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, a scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, for these ancient texts in the Old Testament that have so much to teach us. Lord, we pray that if we're feeling very challenged in life, you'll bring us comfort from your word. And if we're feeling a little too comfortable in life, you will challenge us uh, to change our ways and to follow you more closely. Father, we pray you'll be amongst us now and that you'll help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you could have your Bible open on Psalm 11, uh, Bible or Bible app or whatever you, you use. You've seen a few photos, and indeed this photo has been the, the backdrop on the uh, PowerPoint of the service today. Uh, a lady in Malawi whose house foundations have crumbled. There are all sorts of foundations in life that may crumble. And this Psalm 11 we're going to look at today addresses that question about how we respond when, when we feel a lot around us is crumbling. Now, a number of years ago, I, I preached here on Psalm 1. 
And Psalm 1, which is uh, another psalm in this first section of the book of Psalms, that describes two alternative ways to live. The way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. Psalm 1 has six verses, it's short. And just like Psalm 1, Psalm 11 is another short to the point psalm has only seven verses. And just like Psalm 1, it's action-packed with a number of evocative images. You see, psalms are poetry. They're quite different from reading a letter from Paul or even a gospel. Poems convey truths to us by painting vivid pictures using words. Poems, in this case psalms, they rely on our imagination and making connections into our life experiences to have their teaching power. So as we start to familiarise ourselves with Psalm 11, because it's perhaps not one of the, the famous ones, you might say, as we do... I'm going to read it again. I'll read it in NIV. It's always good to read in multiple versions. And I'd like you to look out for two groups of things. First of all, look out for the four participants or the four voices that are speaking within this psalm. And secondly then, see if you can pick out the six images that are used to convey Bible truth within this this psalm. So um, let's let's just read the psalm again and look out for the four voices or four actors, the four participants, and the six or so images that the psalmist uses. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth, his eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. There's a lot in those seven verses. So let's see first if we can identify the four different voices that are speaking in this psalm. Well, the first one is the godly psalmist, David. David is clearly under pressure. He's in some sort of personal danger. We don't know quite what this was or even when in David's life this psalm is referring 
It's not like one of those psalms that has a little inscription at the top saying, you know, this was after David's adultery with Bathsheba or or something like that. Some people connect it with a time when Saul was chasing David out into the wilderness in 1 Samuel 23. Or even when King Saul was using David as, as javelin practice, you might say, target practice in 1 Samuel 19, so in that period of his life. Others place it later, when he'd been made king, during the time of the rebellion of his son, Absalom, in 2 Samuel 15, when the foundations of his throne itself were on the edge of crumbling. We don't know. But in some ways, the openness of this makes it easier for us to apply that now into the challenges we may face in our own life and in our own time and generation. What we do know, though, is how David responds to this pressure. You see, David has decided, and maybe decided before the troubles came, David has decided, has made his choice up front. He says in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. So, voice number one is David. But there's another voice, and that's of his unhelpful Advisors, And you hear that in the second half of verse 1 through verses 2 and 3. Now these could be the words of David's group of companions that he's out in, in the wilderness area uh, with, advising him, common sense says you should flee. But equally it could be a voice of his own sounding off in his own head holding a sort of conversation with him. He has this resolve, but, but he has these doubts and this voice nagging away at him, saying, no, don't be silly. Don't place your trust only in God. Flee. Whatever the identity of those voices, what they're saying to David is, what you are facing is too big. So just run. Flee. You are helpless. They're arguing for a pragmatic response to troubles. Not a response of faith. Not a response of risk-taking. It's a bit like Peter's response was to Jesus. He was rebuked by Jesus for that response. You remember... Jesus announced that suffering and death was to be his way, the way of the cross. That was what was ahead of him. And Peter said, no, Lord, you can't do that. You must run away from that. It's the same kind of voice as that. It's not as if David was somebody who who never had lived by faith, never had taken risks. I mean, even when he was a youth, he'd taken on Goliath. So David was used to to living by faith and not just being pragmatic. So although these friends were acknowledging that David was the righteous one, 
he was the one that was facing injustice. They are calling for David in the face of that injustice to run, to hide himself away from the danger, to create his own place of refuge rather than seeking refuge in the security of God. Third voice, the enemies of David, the oppressors. The people who are seeking on multiple fronts to destroy David, and perhaps the friends as well. These enemies are hiding in the shadows. Opponents who are hiding, who are doing things in the background, these are often the most difficult opponents to deal with, the snipers. And in verses 2 and 6, these people are very clearly called the wicked, using that language of Psalm 1. They are people who are acting against God and against God's ways. And they contrast with the righteous in verses 3 and 5, or they're called the upright in verse 7. Those who are seeking to discover and follow God's plan for them and their lives. Note that in this psalm, there is no questioning of who is in the right and who is in the wrong here. Sometimes that's the case. We can delude ourselves that we are in the right, and actually we're in the wrong. But here it's, it's not questioned. David is the righteous one. These enemies are the wicked. And the final voice we have is the voice of God himself. God is the one who, by his character, defines what it means to be righteous, who by nature is righteous. It says that in verse 7. He is the one who loves justice, verse 7, who hates violence, Verse 5, the one who sees everything and examines the hearts of everyone. Verses 4 and 5. This psalm implies that ultimately the enemies of David are the enemies of God. The enemies of the church, likewise, are the enemies of God, is the assumption here. God will ultimately, verse 6, be their judge and their destroyer. So that's the four voices. What are the six images that are packed into these seven verses? Well, first of all, there are three pictures of what David sees around him. The first is one of fear. It's the picture of a frightened bird flying away to the safety of its familiar mountain hideaway. Beginning of verse 2. There's then a picture of ambush. These enemies hiding in the shadows. Unknown enemy archers. They have their arrows set in their bows, ready to release the moment they get a clear eyeline shot ready to be released. There's no lead time here. As soon as they get the chance, bang, they'll release the bow and send the arrow. And then a picture in verse 3 of 
impending collapse, collapse of the foundations of a great building being undermined, just like the foundations of those people's houses in Malawi were undermined by the waters rushing through them when the storm came, threatening to bring down the entire stronghold. Those three pictures of what David sees, but there are three pictures of what God sees. First of all, God's authority. You see, David asserts that God is still on his throne in heaven. That is the place where true power and true authority lie. Not with some tin pot dictator, not with some hidden enemy who's seeking to bring you down. But that God is also living and dwelling intimately closely with each one of his people. Then there's God's, what we call omniscience. It means his knowing everything. That the eyes of God are seeing everything and they are remembering everything that's being done by all people. And that's both the righteous and the wicked. That could be reassuring. It can also be quite scary that God sees and God remembers. And finally, a picture of God's final judgment and justice. That God will one day rain down judgment on those who are the wicked, like firebombs coming out of a volcano. I remember once uh, back in the days when I was working in science, I had a visit to Japan and I got taken out to climb a volcano by somebody who knew that I liked climbing mountains. And the path up this barren volcano had these bomb shelters built at intervals the whole way up. Now, thankfully, we didn't need to use them, but there could have been circumstances when we'd have been very glad of them. So the picture is of that volcano setting off and these fiery bombs coming and landing from the sky in all directions. And you need a refuge, just like I found in Japan. There's echoes of the judgment exacted on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 here. He also talks about a searingly dry wind blowing through the land. There's going to be some seriously hot, dry air blowing through the southern parts of our land in the next day or two. But in these countries in in the Middle East, when this comes, it causes everything to wither and to die. Leads to impending disaster, starvation, death. Those are the pictures of God's judgment and justice. The six images packed into the seven verses of this psalm. Well, hopefully now that's given you some measure of familiarity with what's in Psalm 11 and what it's, what it's about. So let's move now to what is a key question that this psalm poses to us, and then we'll look at what our response to it should be. Well, I think the key question comes in verse 3. 
When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what does the foundations mean? What are these foundations that seem to be crumbling? Well, for David, it it was perhaps his life, his freedom, his ability to move around safely, or if it was the psalm referred to later in his life, it was his reign, his kingdom itself that were under threat. What about for us? We are living in very unsettling times at the moment, even for those of us who who generally are not worried by circumstances. There's a lot of things coming together at the moment uh, that, that are making things very unsettling. And At the basic level, morality is being undermined. In our society, black is being called white and white is being called black more and more. As Christians, the Bible is being attacked and its teachings ridiculed. It's seen now not as authoritative, but as dangerous in in some camps. And yes, some of that's even coming from some parts within the church. You even get some people who say they're Christians who join this rising tide of popular culture that is self-defining what is truth and what is God's will if they believe God exists. And when voices are raised seeking to uphold a biblical worldview, increasingly they are vilified shut down, deplatformed, as the term is given. Biblical understandings of marriage, of biological gender, these are viewed as archaic, hateful, family values being undermined. The sanctity of life is repeatedly being challenged in Parliament. Bills going forward promoting euthanasia, and increasing abortion on demand. And then just out in in the world, we've got prices rising so that some people are being forced to be homeless, having had the impacts of COVID as well, and they're forced to choose, perhaps, between being warm in winter and eating. It may not affect us all, but it's affecting some people in society. And then we have this war in Europe, living under threat and fear and economic implications of that, whether it's food availability, which certainly affects the global south like Malawi, or just causing the values of, of, of pensions to fall and prices to rise. You know, for an opponent to undermine foundations such as this, it doesn't need a large amount of high explosive. What it needs is for that high explosive to be strategically placed and then to wait. And that's what's happening with many of these foundations, moral and ethical, in our society. Key people are putting explosives in strategic places and are waiting for things slowly to alter.
Here's an example, an illustration. It's actually a story from a film based in the Second World War. There were some Allied operatives on a mission to destroy a bridge, a key bridge that would then stop the Nazis advancing. But the the team that had been sent out secretly to do this operation had too few explosives they knew to get that bridge to collapse, to bring it down. So what did they do in this film? Well, what they did was they went further up the valley under cover of all the, the bushes and so on, and they placed what explosives they had in the key strategic places at the foundations of a dam. They knew exactly where would be the weak spot. They detonated them, and nothing seemed to happen. But they waited. They waited patiently. And then some tiny cracks appeared, through which sort of trickled a tiny flow of water. But the pressure of the water on the cracks opened up those cracks more and more and more. The flow became unstoppable. It grew and grew, and eventually the dam collapsed. The water poured down the valley, and it destroyed the key bridge further down. It wasn't the explosives. It was the consequences, the water. And why? Because the foundations of the dam had crumbled. To destroy our foundations, the foundations many of us hold dear, all it needs is for opponents to put explosives in strategic places and then wait. And we see that happening in our society. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The key question in this psalm. What can the righteous do? Now, some people might read this as, as a question of despair. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? They may think, well, what this means is nothing. There's nothing we can do. We are powerless in the face of this onslaught that is changing society. Or they may say, we can flee. We can hide. We must bury our heads in the sand, keep our heads down, keep our views to ourselves, hold them quietly ourselves, keep believing that, and let society do its own thing around us. Admit defeat to the power of the woke media. They might withdraw from the battle. Give in to liberal pressure groups. Simply stay quiet, keep your head down, and don't rock the boat. But you know, to do nothing is a choice that is made. And doing nothing is not what David chose. He didn't choose not to flee and replace it with nothing else. No. He didn't take refuge in the hills. He took refuge in God. David makes a choice, an active choice, 
And we must decide to make that active choice too. So what should be our response from the seven verses of this ancient psalm? Have four things. Number one, be committed. Don't run away. Verses one to three. Now let's be clear. It is not wrong to flee persecution. Indeed, David hid from Saul for years until it was the time for him to become king. And remember, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, not if, when, notice, when they persecute you in one town, escape to another. That was Jesus' instruction to the disciples. So when Christians are persecuted by ISIS in the Middle East, they're not wrong to flee. But sometimes there are times when we can't escape, like the pressures we face in society. And importantly, there are times when the Lord calls us to stand up and be counted as his, to face up to whatever comes our way. David stood firm at one of those times, and in contrast to those other voices trying to pull him back, he declared, in the Lord, I take refuge. He is my refuge. For Christians, open hostility towards biblical, moral, and ethical values is only likely to increase in the days ahead. We'll be vilified on social media, receive threatening messages, And that's for people who may be speaking out even graciously and in love, trying to express a different opinion from that of the new norm. We may find we lose jobs or promotions because of views that we are known to hold. We've seen how difficult it is in Parliament to be a Christian holding to traditional values and remain in a position of leadership. And increasingly, we may now fall foul of new laws that are being passed, even here in Scotland, and so may end up facing police action. So what are we going to do in the face of that? We must be careful that the church, our church, does not cave in to the the simple pressure to curry human favour. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul warns of a day when the lives of people in the church will have a form of godliness but be denying its power. We don't want to fall into that. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires such as fitting into contemporary culture, they'll want to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Yes, that will be even within the church. And we see it happening in parts of the church around us. Today is not a time to fear and hide away. You see, freedom to preach the gospel is increasingly facing challenge in our nation. We mustn't roll over and just pretend to be dead. You see, 
even within the structures of democracy that we have here, we can still speak out with words full of grace, seasoned with salt, as as Paul writes in Colossians. We can write letters, we can sign petitions, we can refuse to be intimidated. Like David, we can only seek refuge in the Lord. In reality, there is nowhere else we can go and still maintain our integrity. So, be committed. Don't run away. Second, be calm. God is in control, verse 4a. Above all, we must hold on to a right view of God. Replace the crumbling foundations that we may have had in our own life and society with new, secure heavenly foundations. That's what coming to Christ means. This isn't just some message to stay calm and carry on, but it's be calm because God is in control. We we mustn't flee, but we must know, more importantly, that God himself has not fled. Verse 4 says, the Lord is on his heavenly throne, the place of authority, the place of power, the place of the king. David kept his eyes on God, not on the threats that surrounded him. David knew that his security lay in the Lord. All the eternal foundations are secure. They are still firm and secure, just as they have always been. The King of Kings does still remain in residence on his throne of authority. The cosmic Lord Jesus Christ is still the sovereign ruler and sustainer of all things, like Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. Even if sometimes it doesn't look that way to us. So while we may be in a country where moral standards, financial controls, ethical foundations in society and and indeed government may seem to have been crumbling around us, we have to keep looking upwards to him and take heart, be calm, God's in control. And be confident God's judgment will happen. Verses 4 to 6. Remember this. Even if no one believes that God exists on this planet, God still does exist. Even if no one believes that the Bible is the word of God, it still is true. Even if no one listens to the teaching of the Bible then that teaching will still be used as a basis of judgment on the last day. David writes in Psalm 11, verses 4 to 6, in these verses of this section, his eyes watch, he examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. He hates the lover of violence. He will rain down burning coals and sulfur on the wicked and a scorching wind will be their portion. God sees absolutely everything. He knows our every thought. 
He hears our every word. He observes our every action. God reads every heart. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And one day, it all will be exposed. On that day, justice and righteousness will not only be done, but it will be seen to be done by everyone, the righteous and the wicked. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, war, but, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We kind of like to put these sort of verses aside a bit, don't we? They're tough. If you visit a cemetery and walk around, it's a quiet, peaceful setting. You know, it's a cemetery down in, down in, in, in the village there. The righteous and the wicked lie peacefully, side by side. You cannot tell the one from the other. Maybe some little inscription on a gravestone might give some indication of, of what the person's priorities in life were, but you can't tell them. They're, they look the same, buried in the cemetery. But God knows the one from the other and remembers the Bible isn't a book of empty threats. Judgment will come. Jesus says it very clearly. A number of his parables were, faced, were facing up to the fact that judgment is real. And so we mustn't water down these solemn warnings as we, as we think about this issue. And the Apostle Paul also writes often about judgment and justice. Hear these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 to 10 aimed at the righteous and the wicked in New Testament terms God is just he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well this will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Be confident. God's judgment will happen. And finally, be comforted. God will deliver his people. Promised. Verse 7. In the face of God's sovereign rule, an impending judgment of everyone, David concludes Psalm 11 with great words of comfort for the righteous. He says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. God promised that. 
And yet, Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So, in this psalm, then, who are the upright who David says will be able to see his face? Because elsewhere in Scripture, it says, Who can stand before God because of our record of sins? Well, by and of our own merit, none of us are in the camp of the righteous. We are all in the camp of the wicked. There's only been one person who has ever been a holy righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the only one who is in the camp of the righteous that will see God's face. Not David, not you, not me. Of ourselves, we are all numbered with the wicked. There's nothing to be proud of here. And as Paul says in Romans 3, 23, I've taken a different version here because it's such a familiar verse for us. Paul writes, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We are all numbered among the wicked, the transgressors. But we rejoice that it continues in the next two verses. Yet God, but God, great contrast, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. That's the good news of the gospel. God loves those who have been made righteous in his sight. How? By faith in Christ. They have exchanged their sinfulness for Christ's perfect righteousness. By his grace alone, they have become part of the upright, of the righteous. And they are no longer numbered among the wicked. That applied retrospectively to David a thousand years before Jesus, all those centuries before. And it's available now as a free gift to you and me right now. That is the only way we can be numbered among the righteous. To receive that righteousness by grace through faith, from Christ, the only one who was righteous. So as we conclude, we all face troubles in this life. We're tempted to flee from the arrows, to run from the crumbling foundations of society. But trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is what gives us the confidence and the strength that David had in this psalm to face uncertainty and, yes, fear and even danger. Our hope of final victory doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when he took our sins upon himself. You see, our crumbling foundations 
which aren't just in society, but they're in our own lives, our own sinfulness. Our crumbling foundations have been replaced by grace. Our lives are now built on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. As the old hymn we sang earlier says, Christ is made the sure, the only sure foundation. Christ, our head, our cornerstone, the thing that holds the whole building up. Us, chosen of the Lord, precious to him, and he is binding us all together into one solid people. Holy Zion, God's people, their help forever, and our only source of confidence, the new foundation of Jesus Christ. When we're in Christ, God's people then can really perform the righteous deeds that verse 7 of the psalm says that God loves. The Lord delights in us when we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him, as Micah 6, 8 says God's people should. You see, God made, has made us new creations in Christ to do good works, as Ephesians 2.10 says. Yes, even when the foundations of life are crumbling and troubles surround us, our foundations are secure and we can carry on doing those good works in the midst of all that trouble. And like David, that should then lead us to worship. To worship God with hope and with joy. To take refuge in him and not to take refuge in ourselves and our own resources. Those folk in Malawi had so few resources to take refuge in. We brought a little bit of help for them. In doing so, we brought Christ to them. Often we have more resources and we take refuge in our own resources. That's a challenge to us that I've seen very clearly from working in Malawi. And then we will seek to follow him more and more each day as a love response to that grace, to those new foundations that are secure and solid that he has given us. The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge that this psalm brings. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to, to think it into our own lives, our own circumstances, and to take refuge only in you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, please stay for teas and coffees afterwards. Um, I'll be available if anybody wants to talk. Thank you to Jonathan. I'm sure he'll be around if anyone, any of you want to speak with him. So let's just close this morning's service with the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thank you.